Welcome to Old China Books. I'm Micah Muscolino. My guest for this episode is Matthew Mosca, who teaches Chinese history at the University of Washington and is the author of From Frontier Policy to Foreign Policy, The Question of India and the Transformation of Geopolitics in Qing China. References to all the articles and books that we talk about in the episode are listed in the show notes. So let's get right into it. Well, Matthew, what book are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about Trade and Diplomacy on the China Coast by John King Fairbank. Boo! You know, I don't want uh, Fairbank lovers to come after me. Are there uh, any Fairbank lovers? I'm sure they're out there in the woodwork. And uh, maybe, maybe very, maybe. very old people. Yeah, possibly, possibly. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Actually, yeah. I think this is a book that a lot of people think they know, but they don't actually know. And it's for that reason, one that is really worth talking about. The first thing that I, that I wanted to ask you is if Fairbank had to do an elevator pitch for this book as a young grad student, what would he say? Can you give us a rundown of the book? If you were trying to sell this book to a press, I think you'd have a few options to go with. And, you know, I think the the narrowest option you could go with and probably the most honest would be to say that, you know, this is the first diplomatic institutional history of the early treaty system that's really based on comparing English language, Chinese language sources. And that's, you know, methodologically a fundamental thing. It's no innovation in the field, right? That's diplomatic history 101. But, you know, before Fairbank came along, very few people had the, you know, the sources, first of all, because he's using newly published sources, which we'll get to, uh, I think, later, maybe in the interview. And, you know, he's one of the first Western historians to study Chinese and to really try himself to use Chinese sources. So he could say, you know, here's the first study that kind of meets the basic methodological qualifications that we'd expect and, you know, really replaces or, you know, he'd say probably supplements, but I would say replaces people like Morse, who wrote the international relations of the Chinese empire using almost entirely English language sources. So I think if he were uh, modest, that would be his immediate pitch. You know, I think the mid, the mid-range elevator pitch would be to say, look, what I'm trying to do here is kind of create the study of modern Chinese history. Implicitly, a lot of Fairbank's agenda here is to say, you know, we need to study the history of China through a social science lens. And that's, you know, something we can probably get to later in the interview. And you know, I think implicitly he's distancing himself here from people like Hummel and Carrington Goodrich and the whole eminent Chinese of the Qing period project, which is really, you know, intensively reading Chinese sources and kind of recording what they're telling you without an overarching interpretive framework. So, you know, in a lot of ways, the eminent Chinese of the Qing period is a very, you know, amazing book. I would certainly trade it for trade and diplomacy on the China coast, but, you know, certainly pre-social science uh, view of history. And so he would be saying, you know, we need to put aside the sinological point of view and try to 
aspire to something that kind of brings Chinese history into the flow of history. If we could get to that kind of idea that he clearly has a bit later. But I think if you, you know, if you were trying to put the most expansive elevator pitch together, and this is clearly, you know, what he's doing in sort of a pretty transparent way in his tiny intro, tiny conclusion, you know, his elevator pitch is clearly that this has to do with the whole trajectory of Chinese history from the dawn of time to the present day. Chinese history is divided into two periods, the traditional era and the modern period. And the treaty system is the crux of this because the treaty system is the first moment that traditional China, quote unquote, truly engages with modernity in the West, quote unquote. And, you know, even within the treaty system, this creation of the foreign inspectorate of customs is the, you know, ground zero moment in which modern China is born by a real attempt to uh, go beyond any existing paradigm institutionally and create a new, you know, cooperative, uh, as he would say, entity. But does it really go beyond any existing paradigm, according to Fairbank? Because in the book, he operates with a lot of different dualities. One of them is tradition and modernity. He's got China and the West, but the other duality is China and barbarian, right? And in a way, the Inspectorate of Customs is a manifestation of that Sino-barbarian synthesis that he sees going back to, I guess, the Liao. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Fairbank's not really a theoretician, right? That's, I think, the first thing that needs to be said. So he's kind of... Uh, you know, very much on the common sense end of history, if you want to put it that way. So I think he's, you know, not really tying himself in knots, trying to hammer down, you know, the perfect intellectual framing. I think he's, you know, someone who says, well, that's, you know, we're in the ballpark close enough. So I think, you know, his response to that would probably be yes and no. You know, he really does go out of his way to really emphasize that the treaty system and the foreign inspectorate of customs need to be seen as part of this long tradition of, you know, as he would put it, Sino-barbarian, Chinese-barbarian uh, cooperation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he would also say, you know, I think he takes it for granted that Europeans are totally different and can't be put into this uh, existing framework. And he's very clear, especially at the start of the book, that you know, it's a category error for Chinese thinkers to have even reached for these barbarian parallels, if you want to call them that. And that's, you know, something that really needed to be wiped out uh, in Qing thinking and, you know, quote unquote, modern Chinese thinking in order to understand the modern world. And so I think he, you know, is kind of torn between these two points of view saying, yes, certainly from you know, the perspective that is represented in the Chinese sources that we'll get to later, later, clearly they're reaching back to earlier institutional arrangements to understand the present. And, you know, that's part of what facilitates this uh, foreign inspectorate of customs. But at the same time, you know, early in the book, and I think this is a conceptual problem with Fairbank that's kind of continued in the field, it's, you know, a lot of praise for Japan and criticism of China, right? So he would say, 
Japan did it so easily, so elegantly, just pivoted to this new era and succeeded. And the sort of quote unquote problem of Chinese history is the you know, incredibly tough institutional uh, structure in China. But from Fairbank's point of view, that's a bad thing because it needs to be pummeled to death and, you know, essentially beaten to death for modern China to emerge. And so, you know, I think one of the weird things about the book is the creation of the foreign inspectorate of customs insofar as he has an argument, which he doesn't really have, you know, I'd say a central argument, the you know, creation of the foreign inspectorate of customs is kind of the pinnacle of the book, but he just kind of ends there and doesn't really talk about, you know, what exactly is created. It's interesting that you note that the book doesn't really have an argument. I was trying to pinpoint one as I was reading the book, and you captured what is in some ways one of the overarching themes, which is that because the Qing had these institutions and this tradition of somehow accommodating, quote, barbarians through a variety of different arrangements, which, of course, the Manchus had themselves been kind of part of in the past. They could respond to the West within existing institutional arrangements, and they didn't have to carry out any kind of thoroughgoing institutional reform that he would call modernization, right? That's what he sees as accounting for the ultimate failure of China's response to the West, because the response was a response within tradition. And because of that, it was inadequate, right? That's kind of what he says in the introduction. But the rest of the book doesn't really push that argument very strongly. If you read the rest of the book, what I got was that all of this negotiation between the Europeans and the Americans and the Manchu and Chinese officials is just happening on the ground. They're working it out amongst themselves. And it is all very far away from the emperor and the court. And there is this almost ad hoc dimension to the way that the treaty port system evolves and the way in which the foreign inspectorate of customs actually comes into existence. I will admit, like some other people, when I read this book previously, a long time ago, I focused mainly on the introduction. And the introduction is especially from a 2022 perspective, kind of off-putting, to to put it mildly. And for that reason, I had written off this book. But this time, I didn't read the introduction first. I started with just the first body chapter. And I have to say, I liked it. There are all of these anecdotes about what was going on in first Guangzhou, then Shanghai. And there are all of these crazy personalities. Sometimes he'll make these kind of essentialist arguments just as little side points along the way. But as the book went on, it gets more and more exciting. And I was like, wow, this is actually a pretty fun book. But then I went back and read the introduction last. And I felt like, wow, this really doesn't do the book as a whole justice because it's just very stale. It's kind of 
of its time. And it comes across as super outdated and very much at odds with everything that we think about Qing history now. But the actual book is still pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, that's the, in a way, the paradox for me in reading this is I would say, who needs to read this book, right? To actually sit down and read this book cover to cover would be a wise choice for a historian of the treaty system, uh, be a wise choice for a historian of, you know, Qing diplomatic relations with the West to start with this book. Uh, you know, if I had a student working in those fields, I would definitely say start here, but, you know, not not too many of those people with those exact interests around. And, you know, if you're not in those fields, I think you wouldn't need to read the whole book. You'd probably want to just read the intro to, you know, see why Fairbank gets so many rocks thrown at him later on in the 60s, 70s, and even beyond. And I think that's, so I guess to, to back up a bit, I think, you know, maybe the historiographical lesson here is that Fairbank's empirical research really saves him from himself. You know, the reason this book has enduring value as research is because it's so empirical. Fairbank doesn't really have, this is not like a Levinson book where there's the argument that just everything is the argument, right? Fairbank actually, you know, he has a sort of ironic light touch. He's reading the English sources. He's reading the Chinese sources. He's trying to put them together in a very empirical way and not argument-driven uh, or agenda-driven, really. And so that that makes the the body of the book, which is 99% of the book, you know, still something you can pick up, profitably read today if you're interested in the topic and, you know, really ignore the intro. And I think, you know, I guess the way I would put it is, you know, you have Fairbank himself as kind of an interpreter of China the the sort of main voice of Fairbank in the introduction is kind of a caricature of himself, right? China is this timeless civilizational order. It goes through cycles. It changes, yet it's the same. Confucian ideology, the gentry class, anti-commercial institutions are so important, right? All these caricatures. And then you have the whole impact response. You know, the West is modernity, forces a revolution in China, which is, you know, I think in a way, the central argument or shtick of Fairbank's whole career is, you know, crux of revolution, everything's revolution. You know, this idea that traditional China is a social whole that is so integrated that it has to be totally destroyed. You can't just have reform. You know, the treaty port system is the engine of this. All these things that he says, I think, you know, you can throw, throw stones at very easily today. But I think there's another voice of Fairbank here that is more, you know, more productive and in a way saves himself from himself. And, you know, one of them I think that he deserves credit for, although I wouldn't personally agree with it, is, you know, first of all, just the idea that in principle you need to understand China before 1842 to understand modern Chinese history. Fairbank himself doesn't really go down that road, but I think he acknowledges that road. And you know, that's incredibly important for the development of the field. You know, in this case, he makes the argument that the tributary system, which I think is his kind of, you know, greatest invention intellectually, and we can maybe bracket that for later, you know, is the antecedent of the treaty port system. And so, 
you know, you can't see the treaty system outside of a longer institutional history of China. I think we should give him credit for that, right? And then within the tributary system framework, right, he has this argument that the tributary system is a sort of pragmatic cooperation between the central Mingqing state, uh, he'd probably just say central Chinese states and, you know, outsiders who need to make something work. And, you know, therefore, the tri treaty system itself needs to be seen as a cooperative structure, a balance of power. It's not just something that Europeans impose on China, but something both sides come to as sort of a middle ground, although he wouldn't put it, you know, in those terms. And so I think for him, the central importance of the the Foreign Inspectorate of Customs, as you say, is it kind of crystallizes this institutional meeting between these two very different systems pragmatically. And, you know, I think one of the arguments he's making that is potentially productive uh, is that, you know, you have already this Qing, what he calls a diarchy between Manchu Chinese institutions. And, you know, now it's becoming synarchy. The Westerners are joining this as kind of a third wheel on the tricycle. And therefore, you know, you need to think of the Qing Empire as a structure in which the Qing side still retains a lot of agency. And so even though he himself, I don't think, really fully grapples in the introduction with the implications of what he's saying in the body of the book, there's a lot that's fruitful and a lot that I think you can see kind of fertilizing the work of his students and the later trajectory of the field. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the title of this book is extremely honest. It's about trade and diplomacy on the China coast in the years following the Opium War, right? Yeah. And yeah. if anybody wanted to do research about that topic in that particular time period, I think this is a book that's still worth referring to, especially if one looks at the types of sources that he uses and maybe revisits them from another perspective, because he is, to a large extent, limited by this analytical framework that he sets up. And there is a lot more going on in the book than if one only looks at the introduction, right? So I thought that the book was especially exciting in the last section, where you have the piracy and the convoys around Ningbo, you have the small swords uprising, you have the most, for me, entertaining character in the whole book, Wu Jianzhang, who he always refers to as this scoundrel who's just a knave up to no good, trying to swindle everybody. And it's pretty clear he was swindling everybody. Um, and I also kind of got a kick out of Fairbanks' Anglophilia. He really, really likes the British. He doesn't really like the Americans that much. He really dislikes the Portuguese. Uh, he has nothing good to say about the Portuguese all throughout the book, which I think is very unfair. But He's a little bit over the top with his respect for some of these British consuls and the people who were doing the translation for the British. Yeah, I mean, I think because, you know, I think today commentators are like, everyone's talking about shoplifting, but what about wage theft? That's like the real crime, right? So, you know, Fairbank here is saying, uh, look at Wu and what he's up to, what a rascal, uh, you know, these British are so upstanding. And then at the end, he's like, by the way, 
Ching never got their money. <laughs> this whole, <laughs> you know, idea of giving bonds was a total scam. And uh, that just went in the pockets of, you know, British and American traders. And they're using this idea of giving the Ching back their money as a bargaining leverage, but they never do, you know, and I think that's, that's the real crime, right? And I think Fairbanks kind of incapable of seeing that in a way, you know, I think uh, he really does, in a way, I think, you know, the, the bad Fairbank is really writing in this hagiographical tradition of upstanding Englishmen going to Asia and, you know, representing rectitude and honesty and interacting with you know, treacherous Asians, and that's just total hogwash. And I think more well, recent the book scholarship- is, The yeah. book is dedicated to Morse, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think that's, uh, you know, I guess psychologically it would be interesting to, you know, as a, as a Harvard man who goes to Oxford at a time when, you know, the Anglo-American balance is shifting, but America really hasn't come into its own so to speak, in the way it would after the Second World War, uh, and then going off and, you know, living in what was still uh, English-dominated, you know, political environment in China in the 1930s. Uh, you know, certainly for the Anglophone world, the British were still far more significant than the Americans in China. And I think he, you know, is clearly, you know, drank fairly deeply of that world and its mythos and you know, I think the, you know, really at the end of the day, also methodologically, he's a diplomatic historian. So he's reading these dispatches. He's reading what, you know, consuls and envoys and uh, foreign ministers are telling each other. And, you know, that's kind of the story he's telling here. He's not digging too far under the surface to, you know, look at it from another uh, angle. And, you know, you could definitely flip it around and say, you know, actually the English are the bad guys and you could get a very different style of history that's also certainly been written by many people since then, you know, James Havia, uh, John Y. Wong's book, Deadly Dreams, Escherich's famous, you know, early greed against Fairbank as uh, imperialist, um, you know, so that's a criticism that leaps out at you, I think. You know, but still, I think he was very diligent in tracking down the sources. And, you know, if you were to go back over this ground, you'd certainly have to go through his notes. And, you know, especially on the English language side, really read everything that he read and try to go beyond it, which, you know, you could do. But at the end of the day, this is a lot of work. You know, whatever you have to say about Fairbank, he sank many years into this book, and it really shows it's incredibly rich and dense empirically, uh, even if conceptually it's a little undistinguished, maybe. Yeah, I think undistinguished is kind of uh, being charitable, but empirically, it definitely has a lot going for it. I also was just sort of struck by his skill as a narrative historian, and that's one of the reasons why it was not a chore to go through all 500 or so pages of the book. I wanted to talk about a few of the figures in the book. He is definitely not kind to Wei Yuan. He does not like Wei Yuan. But I wanted to ask you about Qiying or Kuying or whatever you want to call him. What do you think about Fairbanks' presentation of his role in all of these negotiations? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of an interpretation that gets picked up by Polachek in a more recent book, the idea that, you know, Manchus are more urbane and pragmatic and that, you know, it's kind of the good cop, bad cop of 19th century China, that, Mm -hmm. you know, Manchus are worldly, they're pragmatic, they're straightforward, they're not so doctrinaire. uh, And then, you know, all of the true anti-barbarian prejudice and narrow-mindedness and not caring about the outside world, being arrogant, this is all a Chinese trait. And, you know, that's kind of the dichotomy that you can see in that period. So, you know, I think there's, you know, that idea goes back certainly to Fairbank and gets developed uh, a little bit later. And I think, you know, if you fast forward to, you know, more recent scholarship that I think doesn't have these shortcomings, like Pear Castle's study of extraterritoriality, you know, it's true that some of these institutional structures that are created to handle Manchu Chinese domestic interaction, which, you know, I guess we can see as Qing institutions or specifically Qing frameworks are useful and productive in the treaty port context. And so that's, I think, something that, you know, Fairbank really intuits in this book, but doesn't really, doesn't make a sustained case for. I think he realizes that because the Qing is this Manchu Chinese diarchy, as he puts it, there's an element of flexibility already baked into the system. And he can't really put his finger on exactly, I think, how it fits in, but I think he intuits that it's there. And I guess, as for Wei Yuan, I mean, it's a, it's a glass half full. And I think if you if you truly cared about Wei Yuan or wanted to understand him, I think you would have to realize that, you know, 90% of his intellectual interests and in what he wrote are not about the maritime world or China in the West. Uh, you know, he's very much a Qing statecraft thinker. Uh, he has a journalistic style of writing. You know, he's not one of these Kaohsiung, extremely painstaking people. He's, uh, you know, someone who's writing for volume. And so uh, it's easy to accuse him of having a superficial or unrealistic point of view. But, you know, I think it just comes back to the whole vitiating problem of Western uh, historical views of the Qing as being, you know, I think the unspoken or not so firmly spoken as it should be assumption here is that Japan gets it right, China gets it wrong. And the only right answer is total surrender and total collapse. And anybody who is trying to, you know, go a different road in the 19th century, trying to find value in the past or turn to Chinese history to understand the present is wrongheaded. And they don't realize that, you know, they've entered the era of revolution. And I think that's you know, one of the maybe not so great legacies of Fairbank for the field of Chinese history is, you know, his obsession and centrality with this whole revolution paradigm, which, you know, you can see from a field building point of view, you come back to Harvard after the war, you're trying to drum up money for Chinese history. Everything has to be about revolution, understanding China, where it's going, you know, how does uh, how does the communist revolution fit in with this history of revolution? And, you know, I think if you uh, if you adopt that paradigm, then you're just not going to treat the Qing 
in a very, you know, with the respect that it needs to really understand what's going on in the 19th century. But if you read Trade and Diplomacy, you will know the diplomatic value of calling everybody your dear friend and asking for portraits of their wife. You know, I think Qing is a good diplomat. You know, I think that's uh, one of the problems, I think, with Fairbanks' point of view is that, you know, he just doesn't think that the Qing can engage in real diplomacy until it accepts the fundamental premises that the British have. And, you know, I think he, you know, he kind of, Qing, what a wag, what a, you know, he's so smooth. But really, you know, he's just treading water while uh, the Qing Empire collapses and he's not intellectually, you know, equipped to understand what's going on. And I think that's a central paradox here of his work is that, you know, he he understands, you know, because to him it's kind of a crazy joke to refer to the British as foreigners in a way China has ever encountered foreigners in the past any kind of policy that refers to that or looks at it or seems to smack of that is something that Fairbank doesn't have a lot of patience with. Well, they didn't even know who the Fulongji were, so. Yeah. Hopeless. (laughs) As a historian of Qing foreign relations, you've definitely had to grapple with Fairbank to a considerable extent. And that means that you've spent a lot of time thinking about this book and you probably read at least parts of it multiple times. I remember very clearly when I first met you uh, 20 plus years ago, you were borderline obsessed with this book. What I wanted to ask was, what did you get out of it looking at it again and revisiting it this time around? In a way, it's like looking at an old piece of furniture and saying, you know, this is... uh a little rough around the edges, but it's a solid uh, piece of furniture. And, you know, you could still use it. You might not put it in your living room and show everybody, but, you know, there's still, uh, it's still a valuable book, you know, it deserves to be up there with, you know, if you're interested in the topic, I think the way we would probably, in a way, reject Fairbank is his idea that this is such a central topic, right? Fairbank would say, if you want to understand all of Chinese history or modern China, you need to read this book. And I would say, no, you probably don't need to read this book to understand modern Chinese history. But if you're into the treaty ports and the treaty port world, you know, absolutely still worth reading. And a lot of books, you know, probably wouldn't be read in the same way. And I think if if you accept Fairbanks premises and you know, if you were interested in this topic and you wanted to totally rewrite the history of this period, it would be challenging. You know, I think to, if you cut out the introduction and conclusion and the kind of conceptual uh, thin slices of bread around the meat of the book and just look at, you know, what he's, uh, what he's describing empirically as historical research, I think, you know, yes, new sources are available. Yes, you know, it wouldn't be written in the same way, although Fairbanks a very engaging writer, as you say, but, you know, it wouldn't be radically different. You know, he's put out the shoe leather to go through the primary sources. I think, you know, I think where Fairbank goes wrong here, and I'm certainly not the only person to feel this way, is, you know, he kind of walks past a few trails in the forest that 
you know, he probably shouldn't have walked past. I think he takes it for granted that uh, China is, quote unquote, unprepared for the encounter with the West or the modern world. And, you know, for that reason, uh, he reads earlier Chinese sources, you know, both policy sources and geographic description sources in a very sardonic way and a very dismissive way and says, you know, ha ha, look at all these ridiculous empirical things that Qing thinkers are getting wrong, Ming thinkers are getting wrong, and, you know, isn't really genuinely, I think, trying to see, you know, by the standards of the time, he's certainly sympathetic to the Qing point of view, more so than I'm sure a lot of historians writing, especially in the 30s and 40s would have been. And certainly, I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, the Chinese historians that he would have been dealing with in the 20s and 30s were as dismissive, maybe even more contemptuous and dismissive of the Qing state. Uh, and so certainly this is not necessarily just a Western or American point of view. You know, nobody, when he got to China in 1932, would have been saying positive things about the Qing, really. Uh, and so, you know, easy to understand why. But nonetheless, I think by our standards today, there's just so much uh, more to be said about both, you know, Qing policy and Qing understandings of the outside world post-McCartney embassy, post-1840. Uh, but I think also where he, you know, where you couldn't rewrite the same book today is to say that the Qing is inward-looking or failed. You know, I think the the strength of the Qing empire and Qing expansion are something that he just can't really wrap his head around. And, you know, to be fair, until the early 90s, very few Western historians would have really paid much attention to that side of the Qing. They would have said, well, you know, first of all, inland is inland, coast is coast, never the twain shall meet. And inland is just nomadic barbarians, quote unquote. So, you know, nothing to do with the coast. Uh, you know, Manchus are continental in orientation and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think there are many ways that you can criticize the book today and go beyond Fairbank, but at the same time, you know, it's it's a really old book. There's so much written on the tributary system, which, you know, is probably the one Fairbankian concept, although Fairbankian with an asterisk because of Deng Suyu, uh, who we can talk about shortly. Uh, that's the one, there aren't that many concepts uh, that have are still being talked about, you know, that were coined in the early 1940s, you know, almost 80 years ago. And so until people stop talking about the tributary system, I think Fairbank has the last laugh uh, in terms of kind of shaping at least one small part of the field of Chinese history. Not many books in any field that were written and published in 1953 would, you know, pass muster today or even, you know, be assigned necessarily as part of general exams. Not that I would necessarily put this book on a general exam reading list, but, you know, if someone was interested in it, I think it still, still has a lot of value. I'm going to go on record right here and say someone should write an up-to-date dissertation about the small swords that starts in Shaman and also does the whole Shanghai uprising. And I think it would be fantastic using the methodologies that people use now to study local history and to get into the organization and to find local sources. Fairbank would provide 
a jumping off point of sorts. And I know that there's stuff in Chinese and Japanese that's worth reading, but a really good English language dissertation on the small swords would be great. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole, you know, one of my hobby horses is that, you know, in a way, Fairbank was too successful, right? So you have this whole Oedipal thing in American China studies that, you know, Fairbank represents the old, if Fairbank was interested in it, I don't want to be interested in it. And, you know, I think almost all of Lei Qing history could be revisited in a very fruitful way by, you know, taking, demolishing some of the assumptions that, you know, anything Confucian is going to fail or anything Confucian is both Confucian, of course, in quotation marks, you know, backwards and really getting a more complex, dynamic outlook on what's really, you know, what's really going on in this period. And the period from the start of the Opium War, 1839-1840, to 1912, when the Qing abdicates, is the length of the Soviet Union, you know, from start to finish. That's a long period of time. And I think if you just see it as Qing decline or end of the Qing, you're really not understanding the nuances of this period. Mm-hmm. And if you think about Fairbank scholarship, then you can go a step further and say, well, you know, really the reason Fairbank matters is that, you know, he came up with this kind of simplistic paradigm of Confucian traditional China mm-hmm. and the modern West quote unquote impact response. And that, you know, that was the raw material given to, you know, 20, 30 years of U.S. China historians. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way you could make the case that, you know, this book is already obsolete by the time it's published in 1953, because, uh, you know, a lot of the, the parts that you find so interesting, the later parts, which I agree are kind of the money chapters, so to speak, that's what he was working on in the 30s, right? He starts publishing in uh, the Chinese Political Review, you know, 1934, 1935. He's already been working on this for 20 plus years by the time he publishes. But, you know, by the time this book is actually in print, Joseph Levinson's dissertation has been written, Mary Wright's dissertation has been written. And, you know, they're still within this framework of Confucianism equals conservatism, you know, modernity is the big problem with China. In a way, they're very Fairbankian historians, but they're already moving toward the, you know, much more intensive use of Chinese sources. I would say in both books, you know, that China's at the center in a way that it's not uh, in trade and diplomacy on the China coast, which is really, you know, very much a treaty port book. And, you know, Fairbank, I think, to his credit, kind of oversees as the grandpa of the China field to move away from his own concerns towards, you know, by the 70s already, the whole treaty port, even self-strengthening post-1860 era is kind of coming to see seem, uh, you know, a played out topic. People aren't that interested. Everyone's rushing towards China-centered history. And I think Fairbank kind of, you know, accepts this as he's not fighting back against it. He has his own you know, interests and irons in the fire. But, uh, you know, to his credit, I think he kind of oversees a turn that's kind of contrary to his own intellectual interests and take on things to some extent. You know, one of the things about Fairbank is that after, you know, this is kind of his only real monograph. 
after 1953, he really, you know, retreats from active research. And, you know, after this, the book he's probably most associated with is the Chinese World Order volume from, I think, 1968, which, you know, is a really incredible, uh, incredibly rich and important volume, precisely because he brings Asian scholars uh, into dialogue and has, you know, Korean scholars, Thai scholars, Japanese scholars writing in English about China's international order. But, you know, he just contributes a very brief intro. And I think after this monograph was published, you know, really, he just wrote, you know, even by that time, he had kind of transitioned to being an interpreter of China at a very high abstract level. Right. And a textbook author. Yeah, essentially, textbook author, speaker, kind of, and not really doing original uh, research, really, I would say. So speaking of research, we haven't talked about sources yet. You referred to those earlier. So what are the main sources that you relied upon in writing this book? Yeah, so I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, what he is very clear about, I think, everywhere is the inspiration of this book is the publication of the Choban Yibu which is his, uh, you know, main source, which is this collection of documents having to do with Qing relations with uh, Europeans, Americans, Russians. And these are, you know, documents originally in the custody of the Grand Council, which are digested for reference into these collections for the Daoguang period, starting in 1836, uh, going through the Xianfeng period, uh, ending at the end of the Tongzhi period. And, you know, it's kind of a one-stop shop for copies of correspondence exchanged between Qing officials and Western diplomats, uh, memorials reporting on this stuff and edicts. And so, you know, essentially, he didn't need to go that much beyond these sources. And really himself, I don't think did go into Chinese sources, primary sources much beyond this collection. And, um, you know, it's published in 1929, starts publication, and he's, you know, essentially, the fact that it was being published is allegedly what sent him to China in the first place, right? Someone said to him, you could do this topic as your dissertation research, go learn Chinese, read the Chinese side of the story, compare it to the English side of the story, and boom, you have, uh, you know, scholarship. And that's essentially what he did. And so, you know, it takes us, though, around to the role of Deng Siyu. And I think that's something that you know, so essentially he gets to China in 1932 and he starts studying Chinese and, you know, he's not very clear about who's teaching him Chinese and how they're teaching him and, you know, what's his own translation and what translations he's being kind of assisted with. And, you know, I think this isn't has nothing to do with Fairbank and his attainments or, you know, abilities as a historian. I would put it more in the larger philosophical issue of what is the, what's the field of Chinese history in the U.S.? Because, you know, where does he go? He's associated with uh, Tsinghua, Yanjing University, both schools very tightly tied to the United States in different ways. Uh, You know, both schools that are sending graduate students to the United States to study and, you know, receiving U.S. trained Chinese faculty back. You know, people like Jiang Tingfu, his kind of mentor, I guess, in a way, or the only person that he really talks about uh, in his memoirs uh, among Chinese scholars. 
you know, has this U.S. training. And so, you know, it's pretty clear that Fairbanks' whole thinking about Chinese history is very deeply connected to, you know, not only what's going on in China in the 20s and 30s, but also this movement of people, movement of talent, uh, real, you know, academic pipeline. And, you know, Dong comes to the U.S., I think, in 1938. And, you know, is Fairbanks' student at Harvard for doctoral training. And, you know, almost immediately, Fairbank co-authors with him these three foundational articles, two of them on, you know, Qing documents. What are they? How do they work? What are the types of documents? How are they transmitted? You know, which you would need to really understand the Choban Yi Wu And then he writes this, you know, huge article, 100-page article on the tributary system, which, you know, is really a review of, you know, what he would call traditional China's foreign relations that goes back very early, looks through the Ming, the Qing, calls all of these Chinese sources in huge detail, and then ends with this great bibliography of, you know, Ming-era, Qing-era sources. And it's very clear that Deng is doing most of the work uh, in terms of, you know, calling out the content of this, identifying sources, uh, abstracting. And, you know, it's impossible now to say who, you know, who did what. But I think Mm. it's very clear that, you know, Fairbank was relying very heavily on Deng's Chinese language Mm -hmm. abilities. And, you know, then this goes in sort of uh, academic money laundering. Uh, You know, the monograph is single authored, only has Fairbank's name on it. Mm -hmm. But he's, you know, basing a lot of the early stuff on these articles that were co-authored. One of the bits of research I did for this is is go through eminent Chinese of the Qing period mm. and, uh, you know, see Fairbanks on there as a contributor. But mm-hmm. if you go through page by page, he only has one single authored entry, which is for right. Wu, uh, the mm-hmm. Shanghai Daotai. And all of the other entries are also co-authored with Deng as well. Right. Uh, and they're the only, well, I won't say the only, but, you know, they're a conspicuous duo Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for this brief moment in his career, you know, Fairbank is publishing a tremendous amount of stuff in a co-authored way, you know, which clearly implies that Dung is really doing a lot of the work, because I think if he were not doing a majority of the work under the conditions of the time, he probably wouldn't have gotten co-authorship credit. And then, you know, that's kind of you know, and then the last thing Deng really does is the translations for China's response to the West, uh, which is this, you know, important source book, co-authored again, 1954. But, you know, is Fairbank really doing those translations? I don't think so. I think Fairbank is writing the intros to each section and talking about the conceptual stuff. So, you know, I think it's only fair to say that, you know, a lot of Fairbank's uh, output is really dependent on his graduate student and later, you know, junior colleague, Dung. And, you know, you don't really see him credited too much if you read China Bound, which is Fairbank's memoir, which, uh, you know, I recommend absolutely anyone should read. It's very well written, uh, tells you a lot about U.S.-China relations. You know, Dung just gets a couple very, very passing mentions, you know, oh, I used to do some stuff with this guy, Deng Siyu, and then, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, probably characteristic of the various power imbalances of the time, but it would be, it would be wrong to think about Fairbank without also keeping in mind probably 
you know, the very significant role of Deng Xiu in the Chinese side of the work. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to take a step back and look at the whole period, right? So, you know, the big project that's going on is eminent Chinese of the Qing period, right? That's basically what's going down in the 30s in terms mm -hmm. of U.S.-China studies. And, you know, the clear origin of that is the Yenqing Sinological Index of the Qing period, right? So Fang Zhaoying, Du Lianzhe write this index, basically, and realize that you could use this to write a sort of history of the Qing and, you know, get funding from various sources to work on this project. And of course, as the situation deteriorates in China in the 1930s, especially in Beijing, all these scholars are kind of looking for their exit and wanting to get to the U.S. And so, you know, 1936, 37, 38, you have a lot of great Chinese historians coming to the U.S. and working on these projects. And, you know, of course, we refer to it as Hummel, and I'll give Hummel credit for funding and organizing the project, you know, a la Fairbank. But, you know, it's really Fang Zhaoying, Du Lianzhe, who are writing, you know, probably, who knows, 60 70% of the yeah. entries, you know, especially the really tough ones to write, you know, and that's just reading Qing era biographical materials and kind of summarizing what they have to say in English, which makes it such a valuable book. And, you know, I think that's kind of the template for Fairbank's own agenda, which is, you know, he would probably see eminent Chinese as a very backward looking sinological enterprise. You know, he has his own historical concerns that he would see as being very different. But, you know, there are a lot of Chinese students around Harvard in the late 1930s, early 1940s. Deng is just one of them. Yeah, I mean, Fairbank says in his acknowledgments, I especially thank Yi Tu Zen Sun, who read right. over most of my translations. Right. So, Ren Yi Du, yeah. And she's another yeah. one of those yeah. people who, yeah. I mean, she's notable because she was one of the few female scholars who were part of that academic pipeline. But she was also one of his graduate students. You know, Fairbank certainly would have no difficulty asking them for assistance in his own projects. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think Dung is one of the lucky ones, so to speak, because he gets a tenured position at Indiana and, mm -hmm. you know, goes off to be a professor at a good R1 university. And, you know, many of these scholars do in, in the fullness of time, but clearly Fairbank has under those conditions. I'm sure he wouldn't have to ask twice for assistance in, you know, this and that. And so, you know, I don't think that necessarily takes away from Fairbank as, you know, someone who's coming up with the vision. You know, I'm sure for all of these sources, he's really the one combing the foreign office archives mm -hmm. and combing the British sources and doing a lot of research. And, you know, he's sort of coming up with the paradigms, although some of it's probably also kind of conventional wisdom uh, at the time. But, uh, you know, certainly I would expect him to have had a lot of assistance with the Chinese sources. And, you know, Fairbank himself never really tried to craft an identity as a great sinologist. You know, he does publish his Qing Docs Reader, although, again, you know, I'm sure not without some assistance, but, you know, I think he, part of the whole Fairbankian Chinese history of social science paradigm is kind of saying, you know, maybe in a low voice, your Chinese doesn't have to be rock solid. But at the same time, I think that's also Fairbank's weakness is I think he 
you know, you can see why he's so dismissive of all of these Ching sources on the outside world, because, you know, he probably read a few lines and said, this is just some Confucian balderdash that, uh, you know, don't need to pay attention to. And I think if you, you know, if you go through the philological training, you can come out on the other side in a more analytical way. And at the end of the day, you do need to read Chinese well to do Chinese history. And I think there aren't there isn't the shortcut that maybe he might have seen, but, you know, he did get the ball rolling someone of his time. And it's not a time that I think today we would look on very sympathetically. But, uh, you know, in a way, the he set the foundations for a better evolution of the right. field, you know, to return to where we started, I think. Uh, you know, Fairbank does recognize you need to know Chinese, not not just Chinese, but China to understand modern Chinese history. You know, and I think we wouldn't today, you know, turn to anything Fairbank wrote about Chinese society or the Chinese economy or uh, Chinese culture as, you know, current. But the fact that he sort of understood on some level that you need to do that in order to understand uh, China is you know he pointed the field in the right direction mm -hmm. even if he himself didn't necessarily fully walk down standard. that road mm -hmm. yeah it's easy to criticize fairbank and i think you know probably better to historicize him now mm -hmm. and think about him as someone who you know had his feet uh in multiple worlds at this time and goes to china when the treaty port system is still around but publishes his book when it's gone and you know is kind of straddling uh not long it's not long after not long it's gone, 10 yeah. years yeah right? about 10 years yeah. and uh but you know he was in it uh and i'm sure in the kind of delusional heyday of 1932 when he gets to china you know i'm sure you know the club lounge is still there and the colonial attitude is still there and a lot of the senior inspectorate of customs people are looking back to the glory days of the 1870s, 1890s. And, uh, you know, I think Fairbank really, from one point of view, I think always kind of sees China in that way, but he's also not himself of that world. You know, he's young, he's American, he's, uh, you know, recognizes that there's a new way of understanding China that's very different from this kind of colonial paradigm. And, you know, I think he's kind of in between in a lot of ways here. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to make Fairbank a scapegoat for his times and to blame him for things that, you know, really aren't directly his fault. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think the the Fairbank legacy is, you know, still still around. And, uh, you know, I would say when I was starting to get into the field, although you know, by then, post 1990s, the field is very different. You know, I think the questions he's asking are still important questions in some ways. So. Well, that's it for Fairbank. I hope you enjoyed it. Tune in next time to find out what other books we're going to talk about. Bye.